pleasure to be with you today. Let's turn together in God's Word to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, this will be page 1,370. One of the great lies that's seeped into many Christians in our time is that Christianity is only about what you believe and not about what you do. See, there's a false separation between doctrine and life. And I think this is a reaction against the second lie that says Christianity is only about what you do and not about what you believe. That lie says, just follow these rules, and you'll be okay. No matter what you think about Jesus, or about his gospel, or about sin. The passage before us this morning destroys both of these lies. Paul reminds us that our lifestyle cannot be separated from our theology. What we do cannot be separated from what we believe. They're vitally connected. As one says, this passage deals a death blow to any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is, there's no salvation apart from discipleship, just as there's no discipleship apart from salvation. One of the great dangers in the church today is a complacent, nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. That has a low view of holiness, a low view of sin, and it looks an awful lot like the world. As Reformed Presbyterians, we are known for theological precision, right? We can be tempted to think that our theology will save us apart from a holy life. Or that if we just make sure that we are outwardly, externally worshiping God as He requires us in His Word, then we'll be all right. We must be all right. We forget that which we read in Hebrews about the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Perhaps we think our theological precision or Right worship practices can be substitutes for godliness. We must remember that we serve a precise God. Therefore, we must be precise, both in theory and in practice, in what we believe and in how we live our lives. So listen to the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how he puts it. This is God's Word. Titus 2, beginning in... Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. As we consider the text before us today, it's helpful to see this in context. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 2, Paul is telling Titus what he must teach. What he must teach to this church in Crete. What he must pass on to the elders so that they too might teach it. Look at verse 1 here in in chapter 2. Generally, he must teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. Then you look at verses 2 through verse 10, and he gets specific, and you notice he gets personal, very personal. He tells Titus to teach the older men, doesn't tell you, How old to be an older man? But he says, to teach the older man to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Then he turns to the older women. says, teach them to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or given to much wine. And then the older women, they have a job to do, right? They're to... Uh, be examples and teachers to the younger women in the church, showing them how to love their husbands and their children, uh, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, and obedient to their husbands. Why? So that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Then he tells Titus to teach the younger men. Teach the younger men to be sober-minded. And then he turns to Titus himself. Titus, You are to be a pattern or a model of good works. Show them what this looks like. Live a life that demonstrates this Christ-like conformity. He even tells Titus how how the slaves, the servants, are to act. Obedient, well-pleasing, not argumentative or answering back, not pilfering, but adorning the the doctrine of God with their godly lives. Now notice, everything from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10, is about how the church is to behave. In all of its diversity of age, and gender, and station. These are non-negotiable, since the world is watching. And Paul does not want the reputation of Christ or of the church, or of Christ's gospel, to be dragged through the mud of polluted lives. Because this is what a pious, godly church must strive to become. And Paul tells Titus that he is to teach them this. Don't just expect it. Teach them this. And the elders whom he is to appoint are to continue to teach this. As a minister of the word, Titus has a responsibility to teach the various people in the various ages and stations what accords 
with sound doctrine, namely, right behavior. And this is how we should live. This is how you as a Christian should live. A preaching must address behavior. It must speak to character. It must teach us how to pursue and how to live godly lives in this present age. So preaching is not just teaching. There's a difference, there should be, between a lecture and a sermon. As one pastor puts it, my major goal in lecturing is information, passing down information. But my major goal in preaching, by the grace of God and by the power of His Holy Spirit, is transformation. So not information, but transformation. Preaching is training. It's rebuking, reproving, correcting. Sound doctrine must lead to godly lives, to sound living, to practical godliness. And why is this true? Why is this true? The reason for godly living comes in our passage. Beginning with that word, for. Notice verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. God's grace has appeared. Where? Where has God's grace appeared? Where has uh, it become visible to us? This is the Sunday school answer, isn't it? In Jesus Christ. In the one who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, blameless life of obedience to his Father in heaven, who died a substitutionary, sacrificial death on the tree to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify a people for himself, a people who belong to him, a people zealous, we're told, for good works. Verses 11 through 14, this is one long sentence as Paul is uh, often doing, right? He's, he's writing these long run-on sentences that your English teacher probably wouldn't approve of, but the Spirit does. The whole thing is, is giving the reason why Titus must teach the church to pursue godliness and why the church must be committed to the pursuit of godliness. And that, that reason comes in a nutshell. It's this, that grace is unto godliness. That's what we need to hear today. Grace is unto godliness. The grace of God manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ is unto the practical godliness of the redeemed sinner. Another way we could state that is that the motivation, our motivation for living a sober, righteous, godly life in this present age comes from the divine actions and attitude of grace. God is gracious to us sinners. He gives us what we have not earned, what we do not deserve. And his grace appears and comes to us with this twofold purpose. According to Paul, God's grace both saves and God's grace trains. So grace is unto godliness, 
God's grace both saves and God's grace trains. So first, God's grace saves. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So this grace was not invisible grace. It appeared, and as we said, it appeared in the person and work of Jesus, the one who, according to verse 14, gave himself for us that he might redeem us. So where do we find God's grace? Where do we look for it? This undeserved favor, we look to Jesus only to Jesus, we look to his gospel, that good news. And the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, the incarnation is the embodiment of God's grace. Christ is grace personified. So to speak of God's saving grace is to speak of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, Jesus took on our weak flesh for us. He became man. Our great God and Savior humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born of Mary, born in a low condition, our catechism states. Uh, That is, the king of the universe wasn't born in a castle, but in a barn. He subjected himself to all the miseries of this life, miseries that are a result of sin, or our sin. He experienced pain. And grief in the world that he created, temptation and hunger. Why? Why, oh Jesus, did you do this? Why would the perfectly happy, blessed forever God of the universe do such a thing as become man and suffer? Did he merely do this as something to be an example of, uh, to us of how we should live in this world, this world of misery? world of tears. And some people think that, but they're dead wrong. Why did he take on flesh and humble himself? Paul says here, he did it to bring salvation to all men. He did it to redeem us from our bondage to sin and death and to rescue us from that eternal damnation that we so deserve. Jesus Christ became man, not to see how it would feel, but in order to rescue sinners. God could have left us in our sin and misery. He does leave some in their sin, misery. It's what they deserve. It's what they choose. But by grace and in accordance with the eternal plan of redemption, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Grace has appeared. And by God's grace, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ brought salvation by, uh, bought salvation by taking our sins and nailing them to the cross. And so Paul can write, as he does in 2 Corinthians, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Like Abraham laying that wood on the shoulders of his son Isaac, his own beloved son. God laid our sins upon the shoulders of Jesus, his own beloved son. And Jesus gave himself willingly, lovingly for this very purpose. 
He laid down his life for his people. He, as our great high priest, offered himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. So we know that our, the wages of sin are paid. The, the wages of sin being death. Jesus died our death. Those wages, they had to be paid by someone. Our name was on the bill, but what did Jesus do? Jesus paid it on our behalf. He took our debt. He took our sin upon him, redeeming us with the ransom price of his own precious blood. So by grace, Jesus stood in our place, the perfectly righteous Son of God, a substitute for lawless, ungodly sinners. We see this pictured for us in the gospel narrative, don't we? When Barabbas, that murderous insurrectionist, is released... Jesus is retained, crucified. Guilty criminals go free while the innocent Son of God takes our place under divine judgment. Well, how do we receive this salvation? How does it become ours? Do we pay for it? Do we work for it? Absolutely not. Again, it's by grace. It's by grace that the Holy Spirit works faith and repentance in our dead, lifeless hearts. Regenerates us so that we might believe and repent. So that good news doesn't remain useless and outside of us. No, He gives us new hearts. We're born again. And by grace, He gives us to look away from ourselves, away from our sins, away from our works, and to look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so He joins us by saving faith to Jesus. And this faith itself, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, it too is a gift. The grace of God embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ saves Sinners, redeeming them from lawlessness. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. When John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, regained his ability to speak, where he went into the temple, he did his service, he came out and he couldn't speak. After John's birth, speak again, and he gives this prophecy That prophecy is recorded in Luke chapter 1. He speaks about the coming Messiah, the appearing of God's grace, saying that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him, that is God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So God's grace saves us, yes, but we're saved so that we might serve. We're saved so that we might serve, and we serve in holiness and righteousness before God all the days of our life. We honor God's saving work by living sober, righteous, godly lives today. And so secondly, grace trains us. Grace saves us and then trains us to serve God in holiness and righteousness. 
Look at verse 12. Teaching or training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So salvation does not stop with redemption. It moves on to sanctification. There's no such thing as an unsanctified, unholy Christian We are all, one degree or another, being progressively transformed, renovated, renewed, changed. That grace that appeared, that grace that saves, is also a grace that trains. It's grace, as we said, unto godliness. This is the design of your redemption. You are redeemed from lawless deeds that you can now pursue godliness. If a Christian doesn't pursue godliness, what are they doing? But rowing against the very stream of God's grace. God's grace, in a sense, it's washed us out of the pit, of slimy pit of sin and misery. And like a water slide, it's taking us somewhere. Get in a water slide, you expect to go somewhere, Right? It's taking you down, 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 down into the pool. It's taking us into the pool of godliness. We don't want to be like that kid. You all know him. He crawls up the wrong way in the water slide, and he he clings to the side. He clings to the edge. He won't let the water wash him down. Don't be that kid. Let the grace of God carry you into the pool of piety. Stop resisting His grace to you. Redemption is unto godliness, not unto lawlessness. And so how does grace train you for godliness? What does this look like exactly? How should we, how should we expect to see this in our daily lives? Paul lists four ways here. Four ways that God's grace trains us for godly living today. First, God's grace trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. God's grace trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You may, not, or you may already know this, but goats are very curious, stupid creatures. My papa, he had goats, and his goats would always be getting into trouble. They'd, they'd go out and they'd get their heads stuck in the gate. Stuck in the fence. We have to go out there and and maneuver their horns out and and set them free. And then 15 minutes later, we'd come back and you know where they're at. Their backs stuck, their heads in the fence. Whatever it was on the other side, they just had to taste it. They, They just couldn't figure out how to get their heads back through once they tasted it, though. Very stupid, very foolish. God's grace, God's saving grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We've had our heads stuck in the fence. 
captivated by ungodly living and worldly passions. We were stuck in the ways of the ungodly. We, we were captive to our lust, living for pleasure and comfort instead of for God. We lived simply to taste what was on the other side of the fence, what we couldn't and shouldn't have, that which God's law forbids. And we'd get stuck. And God, by grace, came along. He sets us free in the gospel. And now, as liberated Christians, we are to deny those former ways of life. We don't merely avoid them. We actively deny them. It's, so it's, it's not just defensive, it's offensive as well. We, we hate them. We hate what God hates. We, you can defensively avoid something that tempts you or, or something that you secretly enjoy. You can avoid pornographic material. You can avoid drunkenness. You can avoid hateful cursing speech. But to renounce something, to renounce something is to be through with it altogether. It's not that you suppress desires, but that you've killed those desires by God's grace. So as Christians, we renounce our former life of sin and worldliness. When Jesus sets you free, your eyes are only for him. You don't want to go back. You don't want to get your head stuck in the fence again. You keep your gaze on the good shepherd and you follow after him. And he leads you in the right way. And so first, God's grace trains us to deny ungodliness. Secondly, God's grace trains us to live godly lives. So, yeah, we turn from sin, but what do we turn to? We turn unto obedience, unto godliness. Formerly, our allegiance was sin and, and the flesh, but now our allegiance is God and his word. Look at verse 12. It says, and to live, that's not, that's not just a one-time thing. Oh, I, I lived sober, righteous, and godly yesterday, so I'm good. No, this is continual, right? It's, it's every day. To live sober, righteous, and godly lives in the present age. John Calvin calls this a summary of the Christian life. How would you summarize the Christian life? This kind of sums it up. Piety. Christian life is one of piety. To live sober, righteous, godly lives in the present age. This goes beyond denying our former way of life. Now we pursue the new life we have in Christ. So we ask ourselves, we look at our lives, we, we do that introspection. Am I actively pursuing godliness? Our confession of faith cautions us not to wait for special motions of the Holy Spirit, but to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. That is, we don't wait for the wind to blow. We row. The Psalms speak of this, of, of running 
of running in the ways of God's commandments. Not, not being idle, not being apathetic or negligent, but running. And so are we actively pursuing godliness? Are we looking for ways to serve? We're looking for ways to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to honor him with our lives. Be righteous. What does that mean, to be righteous? Well, righteous in Christ, right? His righteousness clothes us. But in another sense, righteousness is, is, is the opposite of wickedness. It's to be upright, to have a good character. A righteous person is one who conducts themselves well. They prove to be humble and to be generous, to be kind, to be steadfast, to be pure. And we have this word sober. And to be sober, it's simply the opposite of being a slave to worldly lust. The word sober is the word that Paul used three times in verses 1 to 10 of this chapter. He wants the older men and the younger men to live sober lives. He wants all the church to live sober lives. It's the very opposite of the Cretan culture in which Titus was ministering. And it's the very opposite of our culture too. An indulgent culture where our bellies are our gods. The sober person is not controlled by their passions or by their appetite or by their eyes. They live lives of self-control. They are able to control their tongues, their eyes, their hands, their emotions, their mind, their thoughts, sober thoughts. What does that look like? Their imaginations. They've learned to say no to sin, no to the very thought of sin, and yes to grace. So again, notice that these are the very things that Paul has been telling Titus to teach and to be an example of in verses 1 to 10. These are the things that accord with sound doctrine. Unfortunately, there have been recent trends in the church, even in Reformed churches, that separate sound doctrine from godly living. They seem to see these as mutually exclusive, as either or. Paul sees them as one and the same. It's two sides to the same coin. The good news of God's gospel saves us, yes, but it also trains us to live godly lives. It's grace unto godliness. And, and notice, it's not only the hope of a future godly life in heaven. We all hope for that, right? When sin will no more touch us, will no more be tempted. We long for that. It's not only the hope of a future godly life in heaven. For Paul says we should live soberly, righteous, and righteously and godly when? In the present age. A Christian doesn't wait for heaven before pursuing godliness. The time for godly living is right now, folks. 
Don't put God's grace on layaway. We were saved by God's grace, and now we're being trained by God's grace, transformed by it for godly living today. Today, by God's grace, you are being trained to deny ungodliness, to live godly lives. Thirdly, by God's grace, we are trained to wait for Christ's return. So we, we don't wait for godliness, right? Don't wait for godliness, but do wait and hope for Christ's return. So thirdly, by God's grace, we're trained to wait for Christ's return. The Christian must learn patience, endurance under trial and temptation. We know that this present life is a war zone. It's difficult. It's increasingly difficult to live a godly life today. But we also know that this war will not last forever. There's an end to the war, an end to all strife, an end to sin, an end to suffering. And so we wait with an eagerness, with an expectancy, with hope. How can we live today if we don't have hope? I don't think we can. We need hope. But what is, what is our hope? What is your hope? It should be that Jesus will return a second time. Christ's second appearing, his return, is what gives us further motivation for godly living today. Christ will return. He will return. He will return as judge, like a thief in the night. How will he find you? How will he find his people? How will he find you living? Christians who are saved by grace are trained to look for and expect Christ's coming. And folks, we should not look in, in dread or fear at that coming day. It's not like we are the disobedient, rebellious child who's waiting for daddy to come home. No, it should be more like we are the oppressed people of God who are waiting for our strong, loving king to return and to put all things right. Just like Israel in Egypt, we're waiting for God to act. We live with the constant awareness and joyful expectation that our great God and Savior will soon return. So is this now your blessed hope? Are you longing for justice? Are you longing for truth? Is this your blessed hope as you long for an end to all the present godless, demonic parade of debauchery in our current Let the return of Christ be your joyful expectation and your blessed hope. I wonder how many professing Christians actually think this way of Christ's return. I don't think you have to ask them how they think about it or if they think about it. You simply look at the way they live their lives. The way we live our lives indicate whether or not we expect Christ's return. You can simply look at the way we live our lives. We may profess with our mouths to believe in the second coming, but with our lives we deny it. 
We're consumed with the world and the things in the world. We look little to the things above. We think little of Christ's return. We'd be much more motivated to live godly lives in this present age if we thought more of Christ's imminent return. So let that be your blessed hope. Let that be a motivation for godly living even now. Now, fourthly, we're trained by God's saving grace to be zealous. Zealous for what? Zealous for good works. But look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So Jesus' blood has purchased our redemption. It was redemption from lawlessness. Just as Israel was redeemed out of slavery to Egypt, so too Christians are redeemed out of slavery to sin. And we don't go back to that slavery. No, now we pursue our freedom through godly living. The person who is set free is zealous to use and to enjoy our, your freedom in Christ. You're free now to live for Christ, to keep His law. John Calvin says the very design of Christ's incarnation and death, his sacrifice, was to redeem us from the bondage of sin and to purchase to himself, purchase us to himself as his heritage. So to be a Christian, folks, is to be bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by his blood. We are released from the prison house of sin in order to serve and worship Him. When Paul is commanding the Corinthians to flee from sexual sins, he says, you are not your own. How many Americans wouldn't be told that? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You're a Christian, you've been bought, body and soul. Children, do you, do you remember Toy Story? And Woody in Toy Story, he has his boots. I got my boots on today. What's on the bottom of Woody's boots? Andy. Woody is owned by Andy. What's on the bottom of our boots? What's on the bottom of your boot? Is it the name Jesus Christ? As a Christian, you belong to Jesus. As a people for his own possession. It should be our chief delight to serve him. As his people, we're called to be zealous for good works. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be zealous? Well, it means to have an eager desire that you're ready and willing to deny yourself, to obey God, to serve others. You're consumed with the idea of doing good, of doing good works for God, works that He has commanded. We don't get to make up what is good, do we? We don't get to say, oh, this is a good work for God. No, we look to His Word to find out what are the good works He would have us do. And folks, this is an effect, an evidence of Christ dying for you in particular. 
By grace, you are trained for good works. By God's grace, you come to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. You come to run in the way of holiness. You meditate on God's law day and night. You love his commandments. You love his statutes. You show your love by doing them, by delighting in them. Does this describe you today? Are you zealous for good works? As you think about that, remember that this is why Jesus was born in a barn. This is why Jesus took your sins upon himself. This is why he suffered, bled, and died to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So friends, let's honor his person and work with lives of holy zeal. As Christians, our life is defined by grace. We're saved by grace. We're trained by grace to live holy lives. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, being a Christian and being holy are virtually synonymous. So examine your life. Is your Christian profession accompanied by a sober, righteous, godly life? Remember, you can't separate these. You can't belong to Christ without denying ungodliness and worldly lust. You can't be a people of his own possession without being zealous for good works. Therefore, if you have been saved by grace, let that grace, folks, carry you down that water slide toward godliness. If you've been saved by grace, don't just avoid getting your head stuck in the fence. Deny the fence. Deny what's on the other side of the fence. Follow after Christ, your shepherd. Be committed to the pursuit of godliness. And one last thought. Consider how this relates to the culture of a church. This is not meant to be an individual godliness, just you and your Bible and God. Now, the grace of God appeared so that a special people might be purified for his own possession. It's a corporate body of godliness. Your corporate witness and worship will be for naught if it's not accompanied by a culture of Christian piety. So let Stillwater RP be known for its piety. Because as we said, grace, the grace of God is unto godliness. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have appeared, bringing salvation, that you have redeemed us from our lawless deeds, that you have purified and are purifying us for yourself, a special people, for your own possession, zealous for good works. Lord, you've called us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to 
diligently pursue godliness. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit that we might run in the way of holiness. That by his work in our lives, we might live, indeed, sober, righteous, godly lives, even today in this present evil age. For Lord, left to our own devices, we're going to fail. So would you train us by your grace for this high calling, even as we wait eagerly for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Respond with Psalm 130, letter A. In this song of ascents, our supplication is one of mercy and pardon. We're asking for mercy and pardon, which, as we just heard, is found only in Jesus Christ, in whom God's grace has appeared. Let's sing together, stand and sing together, Psalm 130, letter A.